0: Pontifax is part of the Agora Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to an awesome collaboration, something I've been looking forward to for a long time, a collaboration between the History of the Papacy podcast and Pontifax. And I'm together. I'm Steve from History of the Papacy, and I'm joined by Bree and Fry of the Pontifax podcast, Brie and Fry, why don't you introduce yourselves to the audience of papacy lovers out there?
0: Well, hello, Pope lovers. I'm Brie, and I am the history half of Pontifex. I'm Fry, and I am
2: not the history half. I am the layman half. I know very little. It's fun to go through and learn all the stuff with you guys.
1: And I'm Steve. I'm I guess, the history half and the non-history half of the History of the Papacy podcast. Now, we talked about some different ideas for this first collaboration, and I was thinking like maybe a dance-off might be appropriate, but I'd probably get beaten in a history, uh, the Pope's dance-off in a rap battle, I'd probably get beaten at and acting so i'm not a triple threat in any of those ways but we thought maybe we would talk about our favorite popes that we've met along the way and some of our favorite favorite different events and things like that that we've seen from the history of the church and the papacy along the way but maybe before we even get started maybe you guys can tell a little bit about your show and where your idea came from and what you got you interested in popes and papacy and church and all that good stuff
0: our podcast is the history of the papacy ranking all of the popes from peter to francis and we're doing it from a perspective of looking more at the church as a force of history rather than necessarily the implications of religion because religion is obviously a factor but when we start talking about religion we end up talking about theology and dogma and doctrine, whereas we don't always necessarily look at the flows of history that the popes have created. So we kind of wanted to get in there and do that and kind of look at the impact that they have on the rest of history, rather than just on the church. Our format is based off of the Rex Factor podcast, which was reviewing all of the kings and queens of England to start. And they had their own rating categories that were highly subjective and very amusing. And when I started raving to Fry about doing that, she's like, hey, why don't we do something like that for ourselves? And Popes was a natural fit for me. So I am a Renaissance historian. And so Popes play a a massive, massive role in that era. And so it seemed like a wonderful... Line of people that continues through almost every era of history that we could look at and judge. I
2: don't know. I feel like I've just been drug along for the ride. So, I mean, here I am.
0: Drug I would like to point out that this was initially your oh, idea. Partially, <laughs> yes. You came up with the name and everything. I didn't come
2: up with the name on purpose. I did. I was very ill, and it came to me
0: in a dream. <laughs> We'd initially talked about doing a podcast like this, and then out of the blue, about three weeks later, I just got a one-word text from Brian. All it said was, Pontifact.
2: And then she, then she couldn't talk to me for hours, because I was <laughs> sick.
1: Now, did you know each other before, or did you meet through history podcasting, or groups, or what's the story of uh, how you two merged powers
0: Fry is my best friend. We've been Mm -hmm. best friends for, I was just doing the math, over 14 years now. Oh, wow. We met online being nerds back in the day. And uh, I guess we just continued to talk every day, all day, until the present day. And and that's just kind of how it came to be.
1: (laughs) Well, that's very cool. That's a very very interesting start to a podcast
0: yeah and we're we're it's quite funny that it's come together that way because we're so very different in a lot of our interests i've always been the history person she's always been a very creative person so for us to have something like this that we could work on together was pretty exciting
1: (laughs) i think that's the best thing about podcasting that's what really got me into it was just a creative outlet and I was always interested in the church and the politics of it and the, the history and how all that fit together. I was drawn to the papacy and the church. It's because I'm completely ADHD and I can't focus on one thing, so I don't really have to. I can do whatever I want and talk about whatever I want, whether it, uh, if Chinese history catches my fancy one week I can fit that in somehow, or, you know, English, Anglo-Saxon history, that's another thing, African history, oh, guess what, there's a connection. That really hooked me into the history of the papacy and the church and and Christianity and religion in general.
0: Well, how many institutions can we look at in the world that exist in every country, in every era, in every place? It's pretty much just... The Catholic Church.
1: Yeah, pretty much, yeah.
0: For better or for worse.
1: Maybe a good thing to talk about is, let's lead off with, so you're in the ninth century-ish right now, depending on when we release this, it could change, but (laughs) ninth century right now. What Pope really struck both of you, or really grabbed you in this um, 900 years or so, or 800 years of your trip so far?
2: One of my favorites has always been Fabian. Fabian's been a lot of fun Mm -hmm. with his election and the birds. But I think the one that has stuck with me the most has been a really kind of one-off Pope. Didn't get a papal bull, didn't get that many points, but Pope Eugene
0: has stuck (laughs) with us through thick and thin. Pope Eugene has definitely stuck with us because... He's a ghost, and he's haunting us, and (laughs) he just... When we recorded his episode, we had a bunch of very strange, unexplained things continue to happen through that recording. It's not even a long recording, but we had um, my phone just started speaking to us out of the blue. We got some crazy woos come through (laughs) the audio out of nowhere, so he's become a lasting joke for us that every time something unexplained happened or a sound you're not prepared for or something goes wrong it's always Pope Eugene as for my favorites I really liked in the very early church I felt a great affinity for Calixtus I think he was very very progressive for his time like very very forward thinking and also incredibly fighty he wasn't he wasn't prepared to take anyone's crap basically like without he was fighting people in the synagogues he had to take the fall for apparently stealing a bunch of money which totally feels like a setup he just went with every single punch he fought against Hippolytus who absolutely hated him so he was this just this force to be reckoned with and and I love that and I also have a very, very soft spot for Pope Honorius, the first pope to be excommunicated from the church as a heretic. The besmirchers. <laughs> the, the besmirchers have besmirched him because he was, in fact, in practicality, boots on the ground, an absolutely fantastic pope who took care of Rome Revitalized the city in ways far beyond anything that the secular authorities were doing at the time. He was reaching out and making connections with the wider world of the church. He was defending orthodoxy as much as he could, but due to what could absolutely arguably be called a misunderstanding, he is known as the heretic pope and doesn't get any credit for anything else that he did. I want him to always be one of the ones that we praise quite significantly.
1: I always found in the early church, Miltiades really fascinating because like he gets no mention at all. Constantine shows up in Rome and there's nothing. There's like no mention (laughs) that he meets with the Pope or anything. It's just like Constantine gets this great vision and Like he doesn't they don't ever mention a meeting with the priest or a deacon or a pope or a bishop or anybody of Rome, like complete absence of anything. It's like, where does that come from? And like, what does that mean? Like you can speculate all day long. How can they possibly like completely cut him out of the story?
0: I would argue that it's the laziness of the the historians or the record keepers at the time, because they just throw everything at Sylvester. Sylvester's the Constantine Pope, so who cares about Militaides? Let's just give it all to Sylvester, make our lives easier.
1: And then doesn't Sylvester's story just strike you as so fake?
0: The golden legend.
1: (laughs) Everything's so fake in his story. Like even the stuff that's like kind of true seems fake. And he was on the throne for quite a long time, like 25-ish years, if, Mm -hmm. if memory serves me correct. And it's like, None of it makes a lot of sense or fits in very well into, the, into the, the grander story of Christianity.
0: Well, as soon as you have somebody killing a dragon, a pope killing a dragon, or as Fry called it, it, it must definitely be a, a Komodo dragon, if we look at the pictures. I think you, you fall off the rails a little bit. As fun as that is for a show like ours where we can talk about a pope killing a dragon, it certainly doesn't jive with everything else that we're learning about. You know, and we had great historians cover that time periods. We looked at like Eusebius and and the Liber Pontificalis back in that day tried a little harder, but it just the golden legend just takes it right off the rails.
1: That's why I really like Leo the first, because <laughs> You can tell where it's embellished, his story, but you can see that there's some real story in there. With his, you know, okay, we'll throw on that, um, was it St. Peter or Paul behind him with a uh, fiery sword that scares off <laughs> Attila? But you can see that there's probably, you know, Attila, he's reaching kind of the edge of his supply lines and the popes at that point's got the backing of the the what's left of the Roman Empire. Okay, I can see that there's something real there. You know, mm-hmm. there's something. You know, it really seems to be starting at Leo that you can get some a grasp of like real politics there and real the real story is starting to come through. Kind of the the fun stuff.
0: Well, and that makes the fun stuff all the more fun when you can look at it and say. Well, this actually happened. Like, one of the only things... When we go into a pope, Fry knows almost nothing. And when we were getting up to Leo, I was so excited to tell her the story. And she goes, oh, yeah, he's the one who met Attila the Hun. And I was like, <laughs> damn it! <laughs> she actually knows this story. So it's one of those things that is so remarkable. And, and to be able to say, well, actually, that's true, is makes it all the more fun. There's so many rumors and stories that have no basis or any evidence that they any ha- ever happened. So having the ones that do are extra
1: special. Then something like Leo with the tome of Leo. So you have a primary source document that get people angry to this day. That's, isn't. I mean, 1,500 plus years later, people can read that and get angry. That's got to be worth something. That's not a uh, op-ed in the Politico or something. You know, that's, that's something old that people get seriously pissed off about.
0: Including Fry. I thought she was going to murder me if I mentioned Christology one more time. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true and it's it's these we're kind of in the era with with our podcast of answering a lot of those large questions that people got so incredibly angry about at the time and and fought so hard for and had pseudo councils and excommunicated you and excommunicated you. And we come to the point in our show sometimes, and I will give Fry the orthodoxy, and I'll give her the answer that, we, that the church has come to. This is what they've decided. And she goes, well, that's not very satisfying, because you can understand why people would have those questions. The nature of Christ as itself is, is an indecipherable thing. And for them to say, this is the way that we do it, I can absolutely understand why that would rub people the wrong way even today. We even get messages sometimes from people who are like, "I am a modern day Aryan," which I didn't even know, yeah, we met some some people mm-hmm.
1: like actually Matt or Matt
0: one of them was was online, but I do occasionally get messages from people who identify as Aryan or they they argue with the Catholic Church based on part of christology and it's 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 almost two thousand years later, and we have people still arguing this point because it doesn't make logical sense to them.
1: I think that's always interesting. And I was talking with somebody online about um, the Aryan position seems so logical in some ways and then completely illogical in other ways. And focusing more on the humanity of Christ makes seems to be like a more, especially maybe in the more modern sense, like focusing on the humanity makes more sense. But really, in many ways, that's what kind of washed over Christianity in places where Arianism and the more of the focus on the humanity of Christ, like in uh, certain sections of the Middle East and in certain parts of North Africa, when Islam came through, they could be fully Islamic and still think that um, Jesus is a good guy, you know, edit out christ and you're you know you're in good shape
0: well and i think that there's there's some of that that makes sense and and if you look at catholicism as a whole and we go back to jesus choosing saint peter to lead his church because saint peter out of the apostles is the most fallible he is the most flawed you could argue So this idea of being a fallible and flawed human being is at the center point of Catholicism. So the idea of Christ being human is a way to, I can see why that would be compelling for so many people to feel connected to Christ in this way by like, his humanity is like my humanity, my humanity is just flawed, like Peter. It's it's just an identity point, I think. So I can see why that would be compelling.
1: I can also see, like, in the, you know, even up until today, like, balancing out divinity, and because he doesn't just turn into some guy, because then if he's just a really good guy, even the greatest guy, it doesn't explain everything entirely.
0: Well, exactly. Well, it's, it's arguing the, the mystical bits that we're not necessarily supposed to understand versus the way that we connect to it in a, in a human sense. And I think, that that's a struggle that the Catholic Church will have from day one through to modern day and beyond, because I think people often still struggle with that. We see constant challenges to things, even like papal infallibility, and we're we're not supposed to understand all of those mystical aspects to it, but how we can connect to it in a logical sense may be easier to swallow than the the dogmatic answer
1: I really find it's interesting too that i was i've been reading a book and it's looking at dichotomies that seem like dichotomies, but then, like, aren't dichotomies. And that's kind of, like, that's what Platonic philosophy is all about, is, like, squaring all those circles. And that's what they were looking everything through, was through, a, uh, in many ways, like, a completely, not completely different, but a very different prism than the way that we look at things and through, like, a scientific way. But then, like, in, even now, like, in our scientific way of looking, like, I'm... uh I said I'm ADHD I do I've read a lot of like popular things about physics and things with like modern physics like completely seem like dichotomies that work together and I think studying like the early church and all these debates about Christology make you think about things in a very different way than what we might be accustomed to which is probably not a terrible thing
0: oh without a doubt Well and and that's that's something that I think is is a debate in any aspect. That's why religion is so political, right? Because we are trying to square off these ideas of practical living with something a lot more abstract.
1: Yeah, making abstractions fit with practicality is not an easy thing.
2: Mm hmm. Exactly.
1: Another Pope that I've um I, I seem to keep coming back to is Pope Formosus of the Cadaver Synod, he is just endlessly fascinating because his papacy was pretty boring, but his after-papacy and his before-papacy were probably the most interesting, at least top ten interesting, in, uh, I mean, when you talk about an institution that's 2,000 years old, there's going to be some interesting stuff in there, but he definitely start, ranks high.
0: Oh, without a doubt. If you're going to talk to anybody about the popes, they want to talk about Rodrigo Borgia and they want to talk about the Cadaver Synod, and rightfully so, I think. And and this is going to be a great period for us to cover too, because we're coming up to the Seculum Obscurum and looking at. I'm currently writing the Carolingian Pope, so I'm I'm fairly ahead of where we're recording. But looking at how it goes from that into uh, the papacy becoming. Basically, the plaything of the Roman nobility is going to be such an ideological shift. And I know that Fry is going to have so much fun with it, looking at that whole period. But when when I can actually tell you in detail and we can cover the the dragging of this body out. Man, that's going to be so much fun. I hope
2: that we can get a hold of some people... I found made a one-off musical like they it was one night it sounded like they recorded it but like if we can get a hold of them and get their recording that would be awesome
0: uh yeah I would love that (laughs) (laughs) I sent it to you and I think you maybe lost it in your in your brain hole oh probably but that being said I mean this is the kind of thing you could write musicals and movies and tv shows on purely around this one event that happened over the course of one day
1: I think that section of the papacy that the so-called dark ages of the papacy in the 900s is so much more embarrassing and like off the wall than like the renaissance popes like the renaissance popes would be totally red-faced embarrassed. You know, a lot of them even uh Rodrigo Borgia Alexander the the 4th or the 6th. 6th. Like he tried a couple of things to uh, reform the church. like you got I mean he had a, he certainly had his personal foibles, and they all had their personal foibles, but you can kind of see that they they had some intention to go in the right direction. Those popes in the nine, 900s they had no intention of going in the, any right direction whatsoever.
0: Well, and, and they set the stage, I think, like you said, the Renaissance popes would be embarrassed because by the time they got to anything that they're up to, you know, the, the sexual proclivities or the excess, because honestly, for most of the Renaissance popes, we're looking at more scandals of excess and power and ambition and greed rather than just the complete and wild stuff of the ninth century in the secular Obscurum. By that point, the Renaissance popes are diluted compared to you can't you can't top what's coming first and they they just wanted to have the biggest party and what better place than the lateran palace i guess
1: that era was so off the wall and like rome was so run down and you know basically the everything was collapsing around them the the Saracens or the the Muslim armies were constantly knocking on the door like they that could have fallen at any time. And, you know, and, and they were raided every couple of years. like, And they just went for it for a good hundred <laughs> yeah. ish years. They just there was no holds barred.
0: Uh, yeah, we have a lot more sackings of Rome to come in our show for sure. We're we're far from being done with those. but. And I think that that is a representation, too, of why things were so balls-to-the-wall, no pun intended. They were surrounded, and at any point, the papacy could have been completely swallowed up, like every other place that the Saracens had been. They could have just absolutely been wiped out. So, I mean, I know Pope Leo X is, is very much in the future from that, but that idea of God gave us the papacy, let us enjoy it, is very much embodied in the 10th century. So they were just like, nope, well, we could be wiped out at any day. So let's just make it all about us.
1: Then they also let the Franks and the um, Spoleto with the Lombards, like they could have taken over at any point And there'd be no papal states like there's just it's, it's a complete free for all. But they're also kind of pretty imp- powerful too at that point.
0: Well, and that's that's where we are right now. It seems like every episode that, that, we re- that we record right now, I'm telling Fry that the Lombards are at the gate. Yeah. And she forgets every time. She's like, oh, it's the Lombards again.
2: Surprise! I don't think it's the Lombards' fault. I live next to a city called Lombard, and I forget it's there every time. I think it's just the word Lombard immediately falls out of my
0: brain. I can't, I can't hold on to it. It's slippery. It's gone. She hasn't given them their own external identity. When when the Franks showed up, they were sausages, the Lombards, that you just can't... It doesn't identify the same sort of way.
1: They seem very forgettable.
0: Or frustrating. I, I have dealt with some Lombard kings in the last couple of months that I just was really ready to be done with. Reading about a Lombard's death is sometimes more engaging than whatever they were putting the papacy through at that moment.
1: That leads me to another pope. I guess I'll say it again, that I have a very hard time sticking to a format. And I've jumped ahead to the 19th century with Pope Pius IX, because he really seems like where that thousand years ends, the papacy is 100% different after him. And that he stuck to his guns. He was... He went into exile in the Vatican, which that's an interesting concept. You're in exile in what we consider the, you know, the heartland of the popes today. And he really created that. And I I kind of admire that, even though I don't agree with all the reasons He stuck to his guns, I think that somebody who sticks to things, even though it's unpopular, I kind of like that.
0: Well, and I think we've seen a, a good handful of popes like that. To juxtapose we have that on the one hand in the in the nineteenth century with the end of temporal power it's It's almost very similar to what we saw in the early church where we have the popes who were sticking to their guns, even though it was not only extremely unpopular, it was the end of your life and martyrdom. So I think that that having that with Pius the ninth is, is sort of the the most popy tradition he could have possibly had.
1: It's like the perfect end cap to that thousand years. I mean, that's a long, flippin' time. A thousand years. I mean, there's not many institutions that can st- say they've pretty much stuck to it for a thousand years.
0: Well, especially with something like temporal power. How many yeah. kingdoms are that old? Out of the very ancient period, there's, there's very few kingdoms that have lasted a thousand years, if, if any. I mean, empire- comes and goes, but just a straight up kingdom, not so much. And
1: all the political power that the, you know, the papacy was so keyed into for all that time, you know, France and Spain and with all their empires, they still had to play, you know, in many ways, you know, dance to the Pope's tunes for a long time.
0: That's my favorite thing about the papacy is that, is that idea that nothing, the way that we look at history we have historians of of countries of wars of kings and none of that would have happened without like you said dancing
1: to the pope yeah just keyed into so so many different aspects fry as a as a layman what did did you know much about the papacy beforehand and the the institution of the popes before you delved into this project
2: raised Catholic, and then my dad being a deacon. I know tangentially about popes, just bits and pieces here and there. Nothing super fancy, not to the depth we go to, obviously. Dad likes to rant about Leo yelling at Attila the Hun, but, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. It's just, like, you, li- you live through JP2 and Benedict and like then prior to that, Peter, you know, not much. They don't tell
0: you a lot. It's interesting to me because I I wasn't raised in the church and I'm I'm not a Catholic. So knowing that when I talk to people who are devout Catholics, in a lot of cases, we know a lot more. We know we could name more popes than they could if you're if you're not counting, just going like Benedict 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, you know, if you're, if you're actually just naming people who have actually made an impact on the church. Most Catholics know a handful because they're significant. But it's kind of like you said, big gaps.
1: Yeah, I think that's um, where I stand. Like even, you know, we were raised nominally Catholic, but probably John Paul II was about it. Even like, Peter was probably a stretch beyond that because church was more or less a place you went once every couple of years because you were dragged in there. But getting just stumbling into church history and just being like drawn into it when you learn about all these individual people, it that's what like blows the door open. That it really does it like it makes every other aspect of history you've l- learned about so much clearer. And it adds such another dimension to it.
0: And I think it's it's a, it's a great juxtaposition for us, too, because I have all of the historical backing, usually, and I don't know a lot about the ceremony that are actually conducted within the church. I don't know what the liturgy looks like today. I haven't been to a mass since I was a child, and I couldn't even tell you where the Catholic churches in our area are because I don't think there are many, but Fry's got all of that. So sometimes I'll be like, oh, this was the Pope who introduced the Agnes Day. And she'll be like, oh yeah, I know about that. Whereas I had no clue. So she's got all the ceremonial bits. So it it gives us, um, again, the sort of abstraction of history with the application of what it actually looks like in church today. That's
1: what fascinates me is that things that people do today, oh, that was introduced in the 500s. Or that was like somebody who and people, you know, probably a lot of people who attend church on a weekly basis would be absolutely astounded that, oh, yeah, they've they've been doing that. They did that in the 400s or they did that in the 800s. Like that's just crazy that very few things, at least in like North American institutions, go back very far at all and things that go back to. 1200, 1500s, even, you know, 2000-ish years, and that are still like integral to today are enormous.
2: We just covered the whole Lamb of God co- controversy. And like, God, I forget which Pope is probably a John. I don't know. Um, That's a good Sergius. Sergius. <laughs> There we go. But he literally added that whole Lamb of God refrain to the mass as sort of like a I don't know, passive-aggressive sort of thing. And, like, that's still in the mass. He was just being salty.
0: Yeah, the Quinisex Council and Iconoclasm have both come and gone, for the most part, at least in the version that they were at the time. But that spite song is still there. I love popes that do things out of spite. They are they're my favorite. That's why I like Calixtus so much. I
1: love that, too, that fight between East and West. And that developed so early in that... In the secular history they hated each other, the Greeks and the Latins, and it just carries on in like every aspect that they do things that are like ninety nine percent the same way, but that one percent they're gonna completely shred each other over. It's like a almost like a football team like the patriots versus the whoever i don't know football but uh, i'm going to i'm going to run with the metaphor and it's like who cares what the differences are but the <laughs> but they they will fight over that 1% difference until the end of time
0: and not only that but when cuz it seems that throughout the patterns that we've seen so far there will eventually be an eastern emperor who will relent for whatever the Pope is saying. So they will eventually get to this point of orthodoxy. So even though they'll fight over it till the end of time, as soon as it legally becomes not the issue anymore, they find a new one just so that they can have that issue that they can fight over all the way up. Like the schism, the great schism of 1054 is is inevitable because they just wanted something to fight about their identities were too different and it didn't matter what that thing was even though that thing in the moment was the most important thing in the world as long as there was something to fight over it was it was inevitable
1: i did a crossover with the history of the copts coptic church he talks a lot about it's mostly about the coptic church and you know they ended their fight a little bit earlier but it was the, just the same thing it's like let's find something to fight about it doesn't really matter what it is, but and they fought until the death. And it's kind of like siblings. You're never, you know, if siblings aren't going to get along with each other. They're going to fight until they can't fight anymore.
0: Well, and we we actually did a crossover with them as well on Athanasius. And I think he's the perfect embodiment of that. He is the fightiest. Yeah, of
1: he loves to fight for the
0: cops. Oh, and we, we really enjoyed, we, we even had a jingle for Athanasius because he was going to be the, (laughs) the fightiest man. And, and he's, I think he's another one of those figures that stands out for being spiteful. (laughs) He wasn't going to let it go ever.
1: Yeah. That's what I love about all of this. It's, there's just, there's so many dimensions of conflict that it's endless
0: It's one of these strange things in history where we get the opportunity to see how personality actually affects history. Because you can see a little bit of it with kings and queens or emperors, where their personality clashes with people, we're going to have a conflict that extends beyond that moment. But with a pope, because the pope, again, becomes such a central figure at any point in time, the personality of the pope is incredibly important to what's going to happen in history. We've had popes who are not nice people completely destroy theology for Decades. We had Vigilius, who completely hit the three chapters controversy, and then he also started the the loss of control of the popes. Like, we're seeing a personality completely shift an entire movement in history, more than I think a lot of other aspects of history. Yeah,
1: yes. I think the human aspect, that it sometimes gets lost in like the great man theory, and I think it always sticks with the papacy and with the popes maybe because it is connected with religion, like their personal foibles and their personal problems come through really clearly. And that they, you know, even though that they're the vicar of Christ and they, you know, they, they try to elevate themselves above the fray, they always seem to connect to the fray in a human way so much better once you dig in. You know, I think it's a lot easier to cut through the great man with them, even though you would think like in a lot of ways, like they would fit the most perfectly with that theory of of historiography.
0: And I think that's that's Fry's greatest strength is she can she can point out a personality type in a pope in about 10 minutes. When I, I'm i just getting started, she's already pegged this pope, you know, we had um Oh gosh, we had Pope Zosimus, who just immediately was friends. Whoever spoke to him last is who he tended to believe. And she's like shotgun wedding. This is a (laughs) Vegas wedding, man. He is just going to be on board with whoever is in front of him. And she's great at at noticing that personality and really bringing that aspect to our show.
1: Well, maybe to wrap up things today, um, what are some things that are coming up in your podcast that you're really excited about, or? You know, you can't wait to get into.
2: Look, I am waiting to get to the Borgias because I know that you are in love with them.
0: Not as much as I am with the Medici, though. When we
2: get to both of those, you are in love with them, and I cannot wait to see how that colors how you talk about these people.
0: <laughs> That's true. In the more near future, uh, things that we're coming up to, iconoclasm is a pretty big thing. It's a lot of of fascination there. And then um, the Carolingian papacy, the Frankish papacy, as we get into people like Charlemagne. Talking about Charlemagne is going to be one of these moments. But I think the one that is sooner rather than later that I am super, super, super excited to talk about is Sylvester II. For all the reasons I love Calixtus, I love Sylvester II. And he's the science pope, but he's also got all of these horrible, horrible legends and rumors about him that are so contextualized in his own time period. And I am so excited to throw all of that at you, Fry, and just see what sticks, because it's gonna be a journey.
1: I have to ask them one more, one more, one more last thing. That's my famous line. Of the Borgia TV shows, is it Borgia with Jeremy Irons or The Borgias with um, John Doman? Which is the which is your go to?
0: Oh, it's Jeremy Irons all the way. I mean, historical accuracy be damned. I love that man. Oh, when he's in anything else. I know. (laughs) it's it's brilliant and and i think that um you know as far as get i'm i'm a big believer that there is a level of historical accuracy that you have to put in media like don't talk to me about rain or braveheart or gladiator or any of that because it's just so far out the window but if you have a certain baseline that you're working with of accuracy the rest of it, you can make it as dramatic or intense as you want, as long as it gets people excited. Like, as long as it gets people inspired to actually look at this time period, I am, I'm there. So, Jeremy Irons.
1: I have to disagree on that one. I don't know what it was that the, the guts to cast somebody who was, like, their only really famous that they're known for was being, like, a Philadelphia cop as the pope like who was thinking that and it was genius and like the yeah That's that good. i don't know what it was it made no sense whatsoever <laughs> but he nailed it like everybody else is talking in a posh british accent and he's talking in like a philly cop accent like it it just worked as like a for as a 15th century pope
0: And you know, uh, in any other case, if it's not Jeremy Irons, I would agree with you because when they have celebrities play popes, it's not great, right? You've got to pick someone who's relatively unknown. I'm never going to accept Jude Law as a pope.
2: But also he winks too much. I don't like looking at his face. I can't watch him in other things now.
0: I love, I, I can't either. I have never forgiven him for a young pope. But I mean, I love John Malkovich. And even as, as... Po- a pope, he's disappointing. If you have a big name, it usually doesn't work. So having a Philly cop who's not very well known is the way. And to the go. guy who
1: they had play Cesare Borgia, I think his name was like John. Oh my goodness, John Ryder, something Ryder, and he was a relatively unknown Irish actor, and he really, he carried Cesare really well. And Mm -hmm. I think that whole, um, the whole series that I watched it, my son was just born and I woke up with him at three in the morning, every morning, and I would do the feeding and watch three episodes of The Borgias, or The Borgias, before I had to go to work Mm -hmm. at seven. So I was like, already by seven, like four cups of coffee in and three episodes of Borgias. Like, I think that'll always carry with that'll always carry the day
0: i can identify with that because i have crazy crazy insomnia issues so most of my nights are absolutely spent that way so i could completely identify i have very strong feelings about certain historical productions from my insomniac binges
1: yeah it might not be the completely like crystal clear version of your life watching it but it, it definitely works
0: you, you will have stronger opinions about it if you've watched it when you're sleep-deprived.
1: I want to thank you so guys, so much, guys, for coming and um, uh, having me onto your show and then you guys coming onto my show. Uh, if they want to learn more about Pontifex, where can they find you on all the various uh, interwebsites?
2: Yeah, um, so we are Pontifex Pod on pretty much everything. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Patreon. Instagram. Instagram. I forget we have that one. It's just our name with pod at the end. Pontifax Pod.
0: And pontifax.podbean.com is where you can find the podcast or any of the apps.
1: And you can pretty much find mine on YouTube and the podcast feed and the Patreon at History of the Papacy Podcast or A2Z History or A2Z History Page dot com. Uh, You can find all the links uh, and at my website there at a2zhistorypage.com. Yeah, this was awesome. We have to do another one where maybe we focus in on a pope or two. Uh, This was a lot of fun. I love talking popes, talking history. And um, you guys have a wonderful show. People should definitely listen.
0: Oh, well, thank you. And thank you for having us on as well, because, you know, you're, you're the OG pope cast, really. So, you know, it's. Kind of like, you know, meeting your hero. Oh. So for us, this is a big deal.
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's a...
0: We're the baby Popecast. That's what we are.
1: <laughs> I also think we should do something with all of the, the church podcasts and the, the, especially the History of Italy guys, because their accents, at the very least, um, definitely will class up the joint.
0: Yeah, that's what we need. Marco gives me blind praise for my Italian, and I think he's lying to me, so.
2: Uh, we had to do some Italian for a promo, and I was like, I'm just gonna mess it up. It's gonna be bad.
1: <laughs> he corrected my p- Italian. <laughs> so you guys should be very proud of yourselves.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it, because then maybe he's not lying entirely when he says I'm okay. <laughs> he was definitely over there voice coaching me.
2: No, it's like this. She's about to yell at me, you're part Italian, why
0: can't you do this? Yeah, this is, you have more Italian than I do.
1: I'm part Italian, and I think like the upstate New York murders any, any attempt at accent.
0: That's true. <laughs> but it's it's, it's its own brand. Yeah. I like it very
1: much. Well, thank you very much. And I think we'll, we'll, you'll definitely be hearing from all of us again soon.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Oh, yeah. I have so many ideas. <laughs>